to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Have you noticed in some parts of the world, even here in the United States, in some groups, whatever goes wrong, it's always the fault of the Jews? Just a few months ago, the FBI released its first hate crime report in which they showed that in 2019, the last year in which they had statistics, Jews who made up less than 2% of the population in the United States were by far the most targeted in religion-based hate crimes for that year. Antisemitism isn't a new phenomenon. If you think that antisemitism began in 20th century Germany with the Nazis, you'd be wrong. Because this is not a new phenomenon. The Jews have been targets for harassment and destruction from time immemorial. Antisemitism is the original prejudice. It goes back thousands of years long before the days of the African slave trade, long before the Dark Ages, back before the days of the Babylonians who marched into Jerusalem and destroyed the Jewish temple in 597 BC and then took the Jews away from their homes into slavery in what is now Iraq. And it goes back to the days of the Romans who also destroyed Jerusalem. They burned the city and the second temple right down to the ground, only 600 years after the Babylonians had done so. They killed millions of Jews who were living in what is now Israel and took those who remained into slavery, this time sending them to the far corners of the wide Roman Empire. Then the early Christians held that the Jews were collectively responsible for the death of Jesus and formal Christian teachings branded the Jews as Christ killers, even though history confirms that this was all false. But the lie took hold, and they incited mobs to commit acts of violence against Jews all around the world, leading to many centuries of mass murder during the Crusades, the Spanish Inquisition, the endless pogroms in Tsarist Russia, and the fires of the Holocaust. Europe has a particularly violent history when it comes to its Jewish population. The persecution of European Jews began in the early stages of the First Crusade in 1096. This was the beginning of a long tradition of premeditated and well-organized violence against the Jews of Europe, and it lasted through the Ninth Crusade, which took place in 1272. The Crusades found an easy target in Europe's Jewish communities. It was the goal of the religious crusaders to march through Europe on their way to the Holy Land, what is now Israel, to kill the so-called heathens there. But on their way across Europe, the crusaders murdered thousands of Jews and reduced to ruins the Jewish towns that they happened to come across. In 1146, Money that had been extorted or stolen from French Jews was used to provide the funds for the Second Crusade. But it didn't stop the organized attacks against the Jews in France. In fact, attacks against Jewish communities became a component 
of that crusade too, and the ones that followed. The third crusade began in 1189, and that lasted for more than three years. It was a joint adventure by the leaders of England, France, and the Holy Roman Empire to reconquer the Holy Land for Christianity and wrested away from Muslim Sultan Saladin, who had conquered it in 1187. For the Jews of England, this third crusade was the worst. As a result of the religious frenzy that was caused by the English contingent of the crusade, which was led by Richard the Lionhearted, the third crusade was disastrous for English Jews. By the time it was over, the entire Jewish populations of the English cities of Lynn, Norwich, and Stamford had been totally annihilated. And in the city of York, 150 Jews were driven to mass suicide in order to avoid becoming victims of the raging mob that was after Jewish blood. In the end, there were nine crusades between 1096 and 1272, and it is estimated that during that time, somewhere between 3,000 and 10,000 Jews were murdered brutally by the crusaders. Okay, now let's jump forward to 1348. That was the year that the disease known as the Black Death, also called bubonic plague, first arrived in Europe. It was a bacteria, probably Bacterium wipestis, that was carried by fleas. And it came to Europe on British ships that were carrying goods and flea-bearing rats from Central Asia, from China. Many Europeans already knew about the bubonic plague because it had infected Central Asia nearly 50 years earlier. And it was estimated at the time that 20 million people had died from the plague in Asia, 20 million. But when it came to Europe and stayed there for over five decades, close to 25 million people in Europe died from the plague as well. That was almost 40% of the population at the time. And it took at least 150 years for Europe's population to recover. Well, while all this was going on, European Christians were looking for an explanation. Now remember, this was a period in history that was still a part of what we now call the Dark Ages. And people then were largely uneducated and very superstitious. So lacking any science or technology that might have explained it, they were happy to blame the Black Death on the Jews, who they said poisoned their wells. The first massacre directly related to the plague took place in April 1348 in Toulon, Provence, where the Jewish quarter was sacked and 40 Jews were murdered in their homes. Then it got worse, much worse. In 1349, thousands of Jews were murdered and persecuted all across Europe. On one day alone, hundreds of Jews in Strasbourg were led to a place where they were publicly burned alive. The massacre is said to have lasted for six days, and some estimates put the number of dead at 2,000. The remaining Jews in Strasbourg were expelled from the city as part of the Black Death persecution. 
By 1351, there had been 350 anti-Jewish pogroms and 60 major Jewish communities and 150 smaller Jewish communities had been completely destroyed. This caused Europe's remaining Jews to move eastward to Poland and Lithuania, where they remained for the next six centuries until the appearance of Adolf Hitler, who murdered most of them, including some of my own family members. We all know about the great tragedy of Nazi Europe and the murder of six million Jews in the Holocaust. So why is anti-Semitism so virulent that it drives some non-Jews to murder fellow human beings just because of their religion? And why am I spending so much time talking about it today? Well, isn't anti-Semitism hating someone because he or she is Jewish? Isn't that the same as hating someone because of the color of their skin? And isn't that what this whole movement for social justice in America is all about? Well, the answer is complicated. It's a long story. And maybe we'll get into it on a future show. But for today, I wanted to at least begin a discussion of what it means in real terms at a time in our own history when the division between people is so strong and so vicious that the growing chasm of hostility between people, between white and black, left and right, is throwing the country into chaos and may lead to something much, much worse than what we have seen so far. So the history of anti-Semitism is really relevant today because the same hatred that made Christians kill Jews throughout the thousands of years right up until today is still at work in America today. And that hatred of some Americans against their neighbors is destroying the very fabric of our country. And now, at a time when Americans need to stand together most of all, the bonds that used to bind us together are actually driving us apart. And if we don't stand up, and if we don't talk about it and defeat it, it will instead defeat us. I want to read something to you that is all about what happens if we don't stand up against tyranny, against bullying, and the destruction of history, and the hatred that we are seeing right now in our own country. This was written by a man who survived the Holocaust. He wasn't a Jew. He was a Lutheran minister by the name of Martin Neimuller. And at first, he admired Hitler. He even had an audience with him once as a representative of the Protestant church. And he believed Hitler when he promised him, on his word of honor, to protect the church and not to issue any anti-church laws. He also promised not to allow pogroms against the Jews. He told Neimuller that although there would be some restrictions against the Jews, there would be no ghettos, no pogroms, not in Germany. But then Neimuller began to see the real work of Adolf Hitler, and so he began to speak out. Not surprisingly, he was arrested, and he spent six years in two concentration camps before he was liberated. 
So this is what he wrote. Quote, First, they came for the communists. And I didn't speak out because I was not a communist. Then they came for the socialists. And I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionist. But I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews. And I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me. And there was no one left to speak out for me. So why am I telling you about all this ancient history and why am I talking about the Nazis and anti-Semitism? How is it relevant to what's going on today? Well, sorry to say, it's very relevant. First of all, because the center of everything that's going on in America today is all about prejudice. And as I said before, the Jews were the first to experience the kind of prejudice that can end in mass murder and war. So this is not a new phenomenon. And it happened to the Jews long before there were black slaves in America, long before Jim Crow, and long before safe spaces. And the prejudice against Jews is still going on in Israel, where terrorists are trying to kill Jews every day because they are Jews. In Brooklyn, black teenagers attack religious Jewish families. They're easy to identify because of their distinctive dress, and they attack them because they are Jews. A gunman killed 11 people at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh only a few years ago. And last year in Jersey City, two black terrorists attacked a kosher deli and killed four people, including the owner, two customers, and a police officer. Mayor Bill de Blasio of New York City, in a rare moment of clarity, said that the shooting, quote, tragically confirms that a growing pattern of violent anti-Semitism has now turned into a crisis for our nation, unquote. He called it what it was, and he was right. The growing epidemic of anti-Semitism in America and around the world is a symptom of a much larger problem. The Jews have always been the canary in the coal mine. When Jews are attacked, first randomly and then systematically, it is a sign of a greater malaise in the country and the beginning of something much more widespread and dangerous for our future. George Santayana warned us that if we didn't pay attention to history, we would be doomed to repeat it. In our case, the history that we need to pay attention to is the history of the Jewish people the history I've been recounting to you today. The rise of the Nazis in Europe, the rise of the Soviet Union, the rise and almost immediate failure of socialism in Venezuela, and going back nearly 160 years, the events leading up to the Civil War. America has never been closer to losing everything we have fought for throughout our 240-odd year history. We are already losing our freedom of speech, our freedom of assembly, our freedom of religion, our right to bear arms, and more. 
how much are we willing to lose before we begin to lose the ability to fight back and reclaim them? Those freedoms that were guaranteed to us by the framers of our Declaration of Independence, which they wrote at great risk to their own lives, and the U.S. Constitution and the Bill of Rights. My friends, we must listen to the words of those who have lost everything, who watched history unfold instead of being a part of the events that reclaimed their freedom. They watched as even their most basic freedoms were stolen away from them, not only their freedom of liberty, of speech, of worship, but of life itself. So what does history tell us about America today? I'll be talking about this and a lot more right after the break. So stay right where you are. I'm Alana Friedman on The Friedman Report, and I'll be right back with more on America's Greatest Challenge. Well, my fellow Americans, how did you feel watching footage on the news of domestic terrorists looting our stores and burning our cities down? Uh, you were probably disgusted and angry as much as I was. It's disturbing what's going on. Well, you'd be shocked to know that your shopping habits are supporting these extremists. Companies like Amazon, Nike, Disney, FedEx, it's an endless list. And they've been supporting these radical groups. Let's stop supporting companies that fund these extremist groups. We can all do our part. Visit shoptotheright.com and you'll find businesses in a nationwide database and companies that are aligned with our American values. Visit shoptotheright.com and let's all make a difference. Before the break, I talked about one major thread in the history of prejudice, and I explained that bias based on religion or culture or skin color isn't a new phenomenon, but a very, very old one. So let's take a look at the kind of prejudice that we're dealing with right now. This isn't about ancient history, but rather it's about what we used to call current events. It's a new kind of prejudice, the kind where the former victims of widespread bias in this country are now the drivers of the new kind of prejudice, the prejudice of black against white, young against old, liberals against conservatives, and reds and greens against red, white, and blue. In today's upside-down world, it's people of color who are prejudiced against anyone who is white. And they're saying that the very fact that people are white gives them privilege for which they must now be punished. This is the same kind of racial prejudice that blacks in America have suffered from for hundreds of years. And now, instead of having learned from their own experience, or maybe because of it, they are imposing the same racial prejudice against white people all of them. And instead of treating white people with kindness and compassion as they wish they had been treated, they are, it seems, out for revenge and trying to impose the same harsh judgments on white people that they themselves have experienced. There are many ironies residing in all this. The irony, for example, of white people joining black people to condemn other white people, and even themselves, 
for being white, something over which they had no control. And black people who want to hide from white people, even as they condemn them for a privilege over which they have absolutely no control. Today, black university students are demanding safe spaces. These are rooms or buildings even where only people like themselves, other black people, can congregate and be together. And it's because, they say, that other black people are the only people with whom they feel comfortable. It's called something like woke segregation. At DePaul University in Chicago, black students have just upped the ante. According to the student newspaper, DePaulia, quote, BSU, that's the Black Student Union, demanded that DePaul add more black therapists and counselors in university counseling services, active points of access to faculty for black students, diversity training conducted by black and brown people, safe spaces for black students both on and off campus, and respect from the administration, unquote. Well, respect from the administration is a given for all students, but for the rest of it? Well, there's more anyway. They went on to say this. It is imperative for the DePaul administration to follow and heed our demands. If these demands are not met, it will simply be another slap in the face. As an institution that boasts about being, quote, a community gathered together for the sake of our mission, unquote, we ask that our administration do just that. Follow through on your service to your students. If we cannot count on our university to consider our needs, who can we count on in pursuit of a meaningful education? Unquote. The Black Student Union is also demanding segregated new programs reserved solely for black students and faculty. And although DePaul University has already opened cultural centers for black, Latino, Asian, American, and LGB students, the black students want more. They've called on DePaul to put only black faculty and staff in its administrative positions in these safe spaces. And they are demanding black teachers only and the rewriting of American history to reflect their opinion of what happened hundreds of years ago, even though the facts of history don't bear out their storyline. They're talking, of course, about the 1619 Project that was sponsored by the New York Times Magazine that dates the beginning of American history with the arrival of the first slave to the pre-American shores. Ironically, some of these demands, if they were put to be put in place, could potentially violate sections of the Civil Rights Act, which prohibits any college that receives federal funds from enacting programs that discriminate on the basis of race. This has yet to be challenged, however, in a court of law, but that may well happen in the not-too-distant future. Another looming irony here is that these young students are turning back the clock, reinstating the rules of segregation 
that their parents and grandparents fought and some died for fighting to overturn the unjust laws of racial injustice. They marched against segregation and against the laws of Jim Crow so that their children and their grandchildren would be free to follow their dreams without the restrictions of segregation because of the color of their skin. And many white people joined the struggle and fought and died alongside their black brothers and sisters. People like Viola Liuzzo, Michael Schwerner, and Andrew Goodman come to mind. Viola Liuzzo was a civil rights activist, but she was also a white housewife and mother of five from Detroit, Michigan. She left her home and drove down to Alabama to participate in a protest march there. She was shot to death in Selma, Alabama, while she was driving her car by a member of the Ku Klux Klan. And two New Yorkers, Michael Schwerner and Andrew Goodman, two white men who were abducted and murdered in cold blood alongside their black colleague, James Cheney, while the three were working in the Deep South for the equal rights of black Americans. And yet, and here's the irony, the very people they died to free from the evils of racial segregation are now demanding to resegregate themselves into what they call safe spaces because they say they are uncomfortable in the company of white people. The irony of this is huge and tragic. Instead of meeting the challenges of racial injustice that they see, they want to retreat into safe spaces where they can hide from the real world and from the real work that they could be doing to bring about real change. They are the snowflakes that only want to change the things that make them uncomfortable by victimizing others, people who are not black, whom they blame for their own personal discomfort. Look, it's not easy when you're born with dark skin that immediately identifies you and sometimes, in some places, makes you vulnerable to unpleasant and even dangerous experiences. I get that. But when you are privileged enough to attend some of the best universities in the country, you are already in a position to make a difference, and it should embolden you to work for change that will help raise up everyone, not just black people, but everyone. But to use this privilege to whine and complain and demand a place to hide is, in my opinion, a misuse of privilege and the loss of a great opportunity to really change the world for the better. And this leads me to another topic that is related, the loss of free speech. In the realm of social justice, free speech is a two-edged sword. In their world, it's okay for people to, who are demonstrating for social justice to say whatever they think is relevant, to blame all white people for the crime of slavery, and to demand that they repent for the sins of other white people who died a long time ago, to repay black people for the suffering of black slaves who lived in bondage more than, more than 140 years ago. But for anyone who is not black, who is not engaged in this 
movement for social justice whose ancestors were not slaves under white slave owners. So for them, free speech is not a given. If you do not agree with the message of the black social justice movement and you dare to speak out, you face the possibility of being canceled so that your voice can no longer be heard. Disagreement is not an option. You must agree with the message of the Black Lives Matter movement and support it, or you will be silenced. This is not America. The First Amendment of our Constitution guarantees the right of free speech. To be precise, it says that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So that doesn't, strictly speaking, say that a private citizen or group cannot restrict a person's free speech. But the freedom of speech in America, for everyone, has been upheld in courts throughout the history of this country, and it has been enshrined in our Constitution as a basic precept of American liberty. So when a group of political activists says other people cannot say this or that, it goes against what most of the rest of us believe, and it is not acceptable. And when the big tech giants say that free speech is not free, that only certain opinions are acceptable on their so-called open forums, and that they are the arbiters of what is true and what is false, what is misinformation that needs to be cleansed from the Internet, lest someone actually see it. Then they become the rulers of mind-think, and only they have the right to judge the rest of us on what we can and cannot say and post on social media. But here's the bottom line, and it's one that the billionaires who lead the large tech companies who think that their billions give them the right to control our minds, it's a bottom line they don't want to know about. This is America, my friends, and one of the most important of our freedoms that were guaranteed to us in our founding documents is the freedom of speech, which can be extrapolated to include freedom of thought and freedom of the human mind to explore and create. And when it comes time for the people of America to choose their leaders, their ability to speak freely and, more important, to exchange ideas is not only important, it's essential. When one set of ideas is silenced, then the American system that was so brilliantly created in Philadelphia in the late 18th century is under mortal attack, and the brilliance of its creation is being cut off at its roots. I'm sure you've all heard of the 1776 Project. Well, actually, there are two, and I'll talk about both of them. The first, the first was President Trump's creation of the President's Advisory 1776 Commission in response to the 1619 project that was the brainchild of the New York Times magazine. AmericanMind.org published an article on January 20th, the day of the inauguration. It was called The 1776 Report, The Meaning of the Founding. In this article, it said this, 
quote, Freedom of speech and the press is required by the freedom of the human mind. More plainly, it is a requirement for any government in which the people choose the direction of government policy. To choose requires public deliberation and debate. A people that cannot publicly express its opinions, exchange ideas, or openly argue about the course of its government is not free. Unquote. And that is something we need to take very seriously because free speech and open debate are a prerequisite for a free and open society whose success depends on the freedom of its people. It is therefore also true that a society that stifles free speech and open debate is one that is doomed to tyranny. And in America, tyranny must be fought tooth and nail because our life as a free society depends on it. Now, the second 1776 project is actually called 1776 United, and it's an organization founded by Robert L. Woodson Sr., whose mission, based on constitutional principles, is a movement of ordinary Americans working together for the common good. Their mission is to support community engagement and civic renewal, and they are getting it done. The work of 1776 United is supported by two teams, a team of scholars who are experts on poverty, history, economic development, and racial equality, to mention only a few of the problems facing black communities today, and a second team of what they call achievers, who work to empower people to renew their lives and their communities. And the efforts of these teams are grounded in the principles and values of the U.S. Constitution. 1776 United is an organization that should stand as an example of what can be done to make life better on the ground for real Americans in real-life situations that can be made better by hard work and goodwill. 1776 United is a largely black organization created to help the black community, not by violence or riots or destruction of property and lives, but taking the opposite route by reaching out into the community and demonstrating that the principles set down by the Constitution actually work on the ground driven by people of goodwill who genuinely want to make America and Americans everything that they were meant to be. This is the American dream, and 1776 United wants to help this community to become everything it can be and everything that the American dream was meant to be. This is the true American spirit. This is what America is all about, or should be all about. And it should give us all a little bit of much-needed hope. Now, we're going to take a short break, but don't go away because in the next part of the show, I'm going to cover some of the other stories that made the news this week. So stay tuned. I'll be right back. 
VoiceAmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Fighting every day against the cancel culture that wants to silence and erase us. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Welcome back to the Friedman Report. You know, earlier in the show, we talked about some ancient history and how it related to what is going on in America today. So now, let's take a look at some very recent history that may have a big influence on our future. During his first days in the Oval Office, Joe Biden signed more than 40 executive orders. And on the first day, as Biden was celebrating his new job, with a quick stroke of his pen, he revoked the permit for the Keystone XL pipeline and destroyed 1,000 current jobs and another 10,000 jobs that were scheduled to go online this year in 2021. Biden said that the Keystone XL project does not serve the U.S. national interest, unquote. In another executive order, he canceled another 5,000 construction jobs at the southern border wall when he ordered all work on the wall to stop. And that, my friends, is just the beginning. But Joe's a millionaire, and he's a president of the United States, so why would he care? It's we, the people, who will bear the consequences of lost jobs and hungry families. John Kerry, another millionaire, nobly explained that the Democrats' rationale for canceling the current and prospective jobs of 11,000 men and women working on the Keystone XL pipeline when he said this, quote, what President Biden wants to do is to make sure those folks have better choices, that they have alternatives, that they can be the people to go to work to make solar panels, unquote. Better choices? Really? Which is the better choice? A full-time job with high pay, benefits, and the expectation of job security? Or, no job, no pay, no benefits, during a raging pandemic, and a bleak future on unemployment and food stamps. Which would you choose? You see, Kerry lied, and 
that's pretty much standard procedure. This is not about their choices, but it's all about the Democrats' green agenda. And Kerry failed to mention that those jobs at solar factories, they don't exist for these unemployed pipeline workers. And then he went on to say that it was market forces that were the cause of their lost jobs, which was also an outright lie, because market forces had nothing to do with their losing their jobs. Oh, you know, it's easy to blame the loss of thousands of jobs on something as obscure and irrelevant as market forces. But the reality is much more specific. It was the Democrats' political, phony, so-called green agenda that caused them to cancel the Keystone Pipeline and destroy so many jobs. And there are no green jobs waiting for them anywhere. And by the way, in that same swipe of his pen, Biden damaged our relationship with Canada, our neighbor to the north. Canada was looking forward to the day when the pipeline, this pipeline, the Keystone XL pipeline, would ship 830,000 barrels of oil per day from the Canadian and Bakken oil fields to American refineries along the Gulf Coast and across the Midwest. Biden had been a longtime supporter of the labor unions, but his canceling of this huge $9 billion project must have come as quite a shock to everyone concerned. So Biden signed more than 40 executive orders during his first days in office. Forty? Well, I'm pretty sure that Biden didn't write those executive orders. I doubt he even read them. I've read a number of them, and they are long and complicated. And I also watched him sign them. It was interesting. He used only one pen, not the hoard of pens that presidents have used in order to give to their supporters of whatever he was signing. In fact, there was almost nobody standing behind him. And it looked for all the world like the papers he was signing were absolutely blank. You could see some of the strokes of his pen on the paper, but you couldn't see anything else written on the page. Very strange indeed. But not all that surprising. The Democrat playbook is full of smoke and mirrors. This may just be one more. I also watched him during the campaign. You did too. Much of the time, he was only half there. People who know him say that he is cognitively impaired. Not a nice thing to say about the man holding the most powerful job in the world. So who's running the show? And what will happen to America in this crazy, demented process? And then there's the COVID-19 vaccine. The Democrats complained nonstop about what a terrible job they said Trump was doing when he was president. But they still have not been able to wrap their arms around the distribution of these vaccines. In fact, Trump had been doing a pretty good job with it, and the process, if not perfect, was orderly. Now it's a mess. Biden says over and over again that every American who wants to have a vaccine can have one. But I live in a state where only a fraction of the population has been able to get a vaccine, and there are none available for the long list of people who qualify and who want to get one. To put it simply, the supply chain is not working. 
the vaccines are not being delivered. The other day, Biden tried to reassure us. He was talking about the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine. Here's a clip of Biden describing his plan for the rollout. Some of it will come as early, begin to come in early summer, but by the mid by the midsummer that this vaccine will be there. And the order, and, and, and that increases the total vaccine order in the United States by 50%, from 400 million order to 600 million. This is enough vaccine to fully vaccinate 300 Americans by end of the summer, the beginning of the fall. But we want to make, look, that's, I want to repeat, it'll be enough to fully vaccinate 300 Americans to beat this pandemic. 300 million Americans. That was Joe Biden explaining his pipeline for getting the COVID-19 vaccine out to the American people. It doesn't inspire much confidence, I'm afraid, does it? You know, former Defense Secretary Robert Gates, who was once close to the important policy issues that came from the White House, He once said that Joe Biden has been wrong on nearly every major foreign policy and national security issue over the last 40 years since he has been in government. That's a big statement and a damning one. So how do we assess his performance as president in 2021 when we don't even know if he is mentally capable of running his life, no less an entire country? and the most powerful country in the world at that. How much damage has Biden already done in his first two weeks? Well, he has opened the floodgates to illegal immigrants. He doesn't call them that, of course. He praises the contributions that immigrants, just immigrants, have made to this country. He doesn't make a distinction between legal immigrants and illegal immigrants. For Joe Biden, they're all the same, only they aren't. Legal immigrants have to go through a long vetting process. They have to pass a medical exam, and they take a pledge to America and the U.S. Constitution. But for illegal immigrants, none of the above. And America is now seeing diseases in this country that we haven't seen in years. Whooping cough, measles, mumps, even leprosy. We thought they had been eradicated long ago by vaccines and therapies. But they're back, and if the flood of illegal immigrants begins again, as it appears it will, we will see more and more of these diseases that we once thought were gone. And we will have to start all over again to go through the long process and costly process of eradicating them. Biden should be working with Congress to get his agenda and his goals accomplished. But instead... Biden is using his pen like a weapon to erase all the good that Donald Trump did when he was sitting in the Oval Office. So who is the power behind the throne? Who is really calling the shots? Can it really be Biden? Or is there someone else behind the curtain? And here's another thing. Every time Donald Trump issued an executive order, the Democrats would accuse him of abusing his power. But I haven't heard a sound from the Democrats about Biden's flood of executive orders. Not one Democrat has accused him of abusing his power, even though 
Biden is clearly using his pen to wipe out all the progress that Trump brought to America. In fact, Trump's four years in the White House were some of the best years for Americans in our history. The average American was better off when Trump was president than they had been in decades. That was because of his reduction of regulations and his tax restructuring that saw average Americans see their income rise by several thousand dollars a year. Unemployment was at record lows for almost everyone, and the economy exploded with exuberance. And when the pandemic seemed inevitable, Trump closed our ports to China and began the most extraordinary realignment to produce respirators and PPE right here in the U.S., and he also fast-tracked the development and then the production of vaccines to fight the virus. As I said, four years that Trump was in the White House were extraordinary, and we all benefited from his energy and his creativity in solving very thorny and complicated problems. And as I have said many times before, and I hope you won't get tired of hearing it, but the peace that his team was able to broker in the Middle East was incredible, something that no president before him had ever even contemplated, no less accomplished. Joe Biden, by the way, is back to the old broken drawing board of a two-state solution for the Middle East. It has never worked before, and it won't work now, because the Palestinians don't want it. They want all of Israel, and they want the Jews gone. Which brings us back, right back, to where I began the show almost an hour ago. And for the last 45 minutes or so, I've been talking about America and about some of the really serious problems that we're facing today. This is truly America's greatest challenge. But now I'd like to take you down a different path, a very different path. Because when you come down to it, there is an even greater story than the United States and China and Iran and the problems of the world, greater than the election and greater than any individual. I'd like to share with you something that was written by James Weldon Johnson. He was a black author and poet who lived from 1871 until 1938. He was also a national organizer for the NAACP. This short work is, in my opinion, one of his finest poems, and it's one of my favorites. I hope it will resonate with you as well, because as difficult as our lives may be these days, we all need a little beauty in our lives to get us through and give us hope. This is called The Creation. And God stepped out on space, and he looked around, and he said, I'm lonely. I'll make me a world. And far as the eye of God could see, darkness covered everything, blacker than a hundred midnights down in a cypress swamp. Then God smiled, and the light broke, and the darkness rolled up on one side, and the light stood shining on the other, and God said, That's good. Then God reached out and took the light in his hand, and God rolled the light around in his hands until he made the sun. And he set that sun ablazing in the heavens, and the light that was left from making the sun God gathered it up in a shining ball and flung it against the darkness, spangling the night with the moon and the stars. 
Then down between the darkness and the light, God hurled the world. And God said, that's good. Then God himself stepped down, and the sun was on his right hand, and the moon was on his left. The stars were clustered about his head, and the earth was under his feet. And God walked, and where he trod, his footsteps hollowed the valleys out and bulged the mountains up. Then he stopped and looked and saw that the earth was hot and barren. So God stepped over to the edge of the world, and he spat out the seven seas. He batted his eyes, and the lightning flashed. He clapped his hands, and the thunders rolled, and the waters above the earth came down. The cooling waters came down. Then the green grass sprouted, and the little red flowers blossomed. The pine tree pointed his finger to the sky, and the oak spread out his arms. The lakes cuddled down in the hollows of the ground, and the rivers ran down to the sea. And God smiled again, and the rainbow appeared, and curled itself around his shoulder. Then God raised his arm, and he waved his hand over the sea and over the land, and he said, Bring forth, bring forth. And quicker than God could drop his hand, fishes and fowls and beasts and birds swam the rivers and seas, roamed the forest and the woods, and split the air with their wings. And God said, That's good. Then God walked around, and God looked around on all that he had made. He looked at his sun, and he looked at his moon, and he looked at his little stars. He looked on his world with all its living things, and God said, I'm lonely still. Then God sat down on the side of a hill where he could think. By a deep, wide river he sat down with his head in his hands. God thought and thought till he thought, I'll make me a man. Up from the bed of the river, God scooped the clay and by the bank of the river, he kneeled him down and there the great God Almighty who lit the sun and fixed it in the sky, who flung the stars to the farmost corners of the night, who rounded the earth in the middle of his hand, this great God, like a mother bending over her baby, kneeled down in the dust, toiling over a lump of clay, till he shaped it in his own image. Then into it, he blew the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Amen. Amen. Well, my friends, we have come to the end of another hour. Thank you for sharing it with me. And join me again next Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman. And this has been The Friedman Report.